Welcome to Space Between. Unk, the crazy Landon. So uh, that's Landon, our nephew. Nick and I talk about in this episode pacifism, sharks, LSD, and all kinds of other things. Happy listening. We're going to talk about nonviolence today, and just one piece of information, in case you can hear it in the background, there might be some background noise. We're actually recording outside today, so we welcome the sounds of nature into the podcast. When I was a teenager, I remember asking my mom a question, and I remember trying to set up this question kind of perfectly. Mom, if somebody had taken me hostage, you know, if they, they had a gun to my head, or a knife to my throat, and you had a gun, you had the capability of shooting them and saving me, you know, and and of course you set up with all the perfect scenarios, you know, there's no collateral damage, you have perfect aim, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. Would you save me, mom? And I remember my mom saying, no. And I remember being pretty shocked by that because my mom is like a big mama bear. She's very protective, and uh, it just it kind of staggered me. And I remember being like, Mom, why? Why wouldn't you? Like, I gave you the perfect scenario. And she said, well, because I know where you're going, and I don't know where they're going. And that kind of made me take a step back and really consider my own position on defense, self-defense, violence, all of that. And the interesting thing is, is just a couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with my mother where I recounted this story, and she has no recollection of it. And she doesn't even feel that way anymore. I mean, her mama bear side is is in full force these days. So she would not even hesitate in the perfect scenario to protect her kid or uh, or grandkids at this point. It's just an interesting way that kind of we change the you know our opinions and, and just where we stand on some of these matters, especially matters like like violence and the protection of the innocent or the protection of those that we love. And I think we both have stories about how violence has been in our life in some way, shape, or form. We thought we'd start out at least by sharing some of those stories. So you have a story you want to share? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was telling Nick that I, I have a friend that this actually happened. We were living in, like, the third floor of this, this place in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, my friend had some friends that were staying at his house. Uh, they were in a, uh, I think, like, a a metal band of some sort and so these guys went out um, and they they were probably saying things to a few ladies that they probably shouldn't have been but um, so I guess that upset one of these ladies boyfriends and so he walked down the street and followed them up to where uh, my friend lives and these guys came back into his house and this guy walks up to the door and knocks on the door and my friend opens his door and um, this guy says, I'm, I want those guys to come out here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot these guys. And my friend said, I'm sorry, you're not going to come into my house right now. So the guy pulled a gun and uh, put it in his face and said, you're going to let me come into the house and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill these guys. And uh, my, my friend looked at him square in the face and said, listen, I got my son and daughter sleeping upstairs and my wife's in here. You're absolutely not coming to my house. You're going to have to kill me to come in. So the guy, uh, the guy did like pistol whip him, but like, then the guy stomped off, and I think the next door neighbors may have called the police or whatever else. But like, I was just pretty amazed by that story of like the courage to stand up for something, but at the same time, like to be in a place where, yeah, you realize that there wasn't anything else that you could do except for just kind of stand up and say this is what it's going to be. Mm. Um, and then I was also telling Nick about a friend of mine who 
he was a bike courier and uh i guess this fella thought that my friend had cut him off on his bicycle and so this guy followed him to like a dark like stairway or whatever and jumped out and um like slit his throat and stabbed him in the back of the head and like by the grace of god like my friend ended up being able to get like medical attention and ended up with like uh, well over 70 stitches either in the in the back of his head and also like on his throat it's pretty gnarly scars but like when they eventually caught this guy my friend like the the news were interviewing him and like do you have any words and he said yeah you know like i just want to you know say that i forgive this guy and that i um i'll be praying for like his family and i think that ultimately yeah like this guy needs to go away and pay for his crimes because it's not safe for him to be in society but at the same time um i I wish the best for him and so like nick and i i was just saying to to him like, like it to me like those scenarios when you hear about people that have guns and they've protected themselves because they shot this other person like we're always like man like i think the one thing that you hear is like oh it's a good thing that that guy had a gun but nobody wants to be in that situation or have like what this guy had you know like courage or whatever else but when i had my my friends that went through these scenarios and the way that they acted they had some kind of like i don't know value or courage or bravery or whatever those like i don't know tangible things that i was like man like i would hope that i would have that in me and um i I kind of wanted to to have those things and like to learn from those scenarios so i think that's one of the things that i always like whenever i think about this or i write about this uh, i always come down to the end and I'm like, I hope that I would have the strength mm-hmm. to do what I believe mm-hmm. because I do think, I mean, and I, I don't want to discount anybody out there who has been the brave person mm-hmm. to stand up for other people, um, whether with a gun or not. But right. like, I do think the easier thing to do is to pull that trigger. Yeah. It's to, is to put down the, put down the threat, mm-hmm. put down the thing you fear rather yeah. than to engage yeah. it in some other way. And would I have the courage to do that? I don't know. Yeah. Because again, the easy thing, somebody breaks in my house. Well, the easy thing for me to do is to attack them. Yeah. Like, and I don't think I'd have a, <laughs> wouldn't have a problem doing that. I, it's not me having to work up courage to do that. Uh, there's something in you when you have a family in the house that I think you just do mm-hmm. that. But maybe that's not what, maybe that's not what we're called to. And I think that's where it comes down for me is like, it was Jesus calling me to something different than yeah. what's easy for me to do. Yeah. What do you think the motivation is for somebody to like, I guess, end someone else's life in one of those scenarios? <sighs> The motivation for yeah. someone to end someone else's life. Yeah. I mean, it, it could it be as simple as just ending the immediate threat? Yeah. Can that be just, or is it, do you think it's more than that? Maybe. I, I don't know. I guess maybe fear. Yeah. Fear of death. Mm. Fear of um, being harmed. Sure. Fear of something having, happening to your family. Like, I think fear is a big, is a big motivator. And um, I think when we allow fear to make the decisions for us often the results are not um yeah they're not they're not the kind of results that you look at back and say man that was that was a good decision that's good so like this kind of goes back to our conversation doug and i are at the beach and we were talking about the ocean Mm -hmm. and uh i don't i don't really swim in the ocean doug like throws his body into the waves and and beats them and uh 
And he was like, what's it take to get you in the ocean? And I was like, I don't know. There's anything beyond, like, trying to rescue somebody to get me in the ocean. Because I just I hate the idea of sharks. Like, I just hate it. And, uh, and he was kind of pressing me, like, well, why? And I'm like, because I don't want to be bitten by a shark. And mm-hmm. as, as, like, crazy as that may sound to those of you who love the ocean... It's a genuine fear mm-hmm. of, like, I can't see in the water. I don't know what's swimming around me. I've seen those pictures in magazines from helicopters. So you can see all the sharks around the people swimming. And uh, and I just, I've been around enough wild animals to know that it doesn't take much to provoke one. So I'd rather not go in the water and chance it at all. Yeah. And, uh, of course, by not going in the water and chancing it, I'm missing out on a whole bunch of water time. I'm yeah. missing out on, like, playing in the waves and experiencing a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so my experience with the water is, is very limited because yeah. of it. And because and that's all about fear of, yeah, being bitten or being maimed yeah. or or dying. On the other side, you value safety, then. Right. So like, I guess valuing safety is absolutely something that I think is is okay. So then, like the person behind the gun, yeah, the person that can pull the gun to yeah. to protect, right? Is it a value of safety? Right. I I mean I guess that that's where that's where we get into these these tricky situations mm-hmm. is. Are we able to analyze the data that's around us in those situations where we feel like our safety is being questioned? And because we value that safety and we're, do we allow fear then to, to manipulate that to the point where we misunderstand the data and we make decisions? Or do we, and I think that's maybe where, at least on my standpoint, is I'm afraid that I'll, mis, I'll misunderstand that. And so I don't want anything to do with it. Guns are too scary. You know, like, I, I, I think that um, I value people's lives to the point of where I understand that if I have a gun, I could do something wrong with it. Hmm. And so uh, I don't want that on my conscience. It's probably helpful, too, for us to kind of divulge our own standpoints on this because yeah. I think there's there's a lot of similarity between where we stand yeah. on this. Yeah. There are some few differences mm-hmm. in terms of, of, like, gun use and violence and Absolutely. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I know, like, you have said to me before, like, you don't want to take life, period. So that would be, like, animals as well as, yeah. as people. Yeah. And now you're also kind of describing a, you would desire not to have a gun. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, it's not that I desire. I think... I mean, I've fired guns before, but it's, like, terrifying. Um, They're literally... The amount of responsibility that I think it requires is often not respected. Mm. I agree with that. Um, And I think that... uh, I think that they're not, not... It's a tool, absolutely, but it's a tool that I don't require. Yeah. I can buy food at the grocery store and I understand that there are people that their life source of how they feed their home has a lot to do with using guns I'm okay with that and that's this is a choice that I wouldn't make but that's a choice that like to feed their families absolutely I get that yeah but for me like yeah I, I just I don't understand and so like, like if I, I, I if yeah. I invited you to go hunting would you go hunting with me I, I would I would sit <laughs> right, but yeah. I wouldn't. You wouldn't go I wouldn't hunting, right? Yeah, I wouldn't shoot. And what's I, your reasoning there? Uh, well, I think that that probably comes down to the value of God's creation, and God's created these animals in a certain way. And I understand even, and we don't want overpopulation of a certain species or whatever else. I don't want to make that decision. I just feel like maybe God made the earth and a place where 
predators were around for a reason to keep that in population. And maybe we're one of those predators and that's part of it. But I don't know. Like I just it's too much for me. Now have I helped people drag deer out of woods and throw them in the pickup truck? Absolutely. <laughs> uh I just I just can't be the one to pull the trigger. Yeah. I just can't. And, and a lot of times like Yeah, I just I couldn't do that. And so, like, on the other kind of, not on the other inspector by any means. I mean, again, Doug and I have a lot of similarities here, but I would be a gun owner uh, with with several guns, uh, mm. shotgun rifles, I feel like he's and a militia. <laughs> um, I, and I'm a hunter, and that's why I have guns, because I'm a hunter. I don't have guns because I'm some sort of collector. Uh, and so I don't have a problem with the, the taking of lives of animals. I, I want to do it responsibly. I want to do it humanely. Those are the things I care about, but... Um, we wouldn't see eye to eye on that component of it, uh, but I am definitely a pacifist, nonviolent. Uh, would not serve in the military even upon a draft, and uh, would not take a human life. Uh, I do not carry my pistol as a uh, self-defense. Um, I carry it only when I go hunting, and self-defense of animals or and to help humanely end an animal's life. Those are the only reasons I ever carry a pistol. Um, so, and I have, and we have plenty of friends and we have a family that would yeah. not agree with that. Um, yeah. and we also have family that have, that are currently or have served in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is, I'm going to recognize some of the trickiness of this conversation or our friends that are police officers even, you know, yeah, and, sure. and that's just what a call that is to, you know, carry that weapon all the time and be prepared to pull it if you need to, but yeah. also have this call on you to protect life at the same time. And yeah, it's so tricky. Um, so we wouldn't. We, our background for both of us. You're not going to find us arguing with each other over whether we should be nonviolent. Right. I think that's kind of an accepted fact for us in our conversation. But talking through this idea of like why it's important and why maybe it should be more important to those who are uh, spiritual, those who are seeking yeah. something spiritual, I think maybe is what we're hoping for in the conversation. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor of an Anabaptist church. Doug goes to the Anabaptist church. The Anabaptist is a 16th century movement, uh, and it was in the Radical Reformation. It broke away from the the Protestant church right after the Protestant church broke away from the Catholic church, and they were kind of founded on nonviolence, except that the very first Anabaptists were violent. They had this insane rebellion, and I, I should have looked this up ahead of time, but I, I, from memory, I'm going to call it like the Munster Rebellion. I think that might be right, but I could be completely wrong on that name. And, um, and they actually killed a lot of people, but they were eventually all massacred as well. Uh, and then after that, um, a guy named Menno Simons, who founded the Mennonite Church, or the Mennonites, or they took their name after his, I guess I should say. His son, I believe it was, was actually in that Munster Rebellion. He was kind of one of the people that picked up arms. It was violent. That was one of the reasons that Menno Simons left the Catholic Church and chose nonviolence. And the Anabaptists have been nonviolent ever since. To the fact that one of the stories that they often tell is about a guy named Dirk Willems, who was, um, who was arrested and put in jail because he was performing baptisms, believers' baptisms. He's baptizing adults, which was against the law back then because both the Protestant church and the Catholic church uh, baptized infants. And uh, when he was put in prison, one night, it just so happened, you know, he tied some bedsheets together, was able to escape out a window. He starts running away from the prison and a guard sees him and begins to chase him. Dirk Willems cuts across this frozen lake and maybe he was just a lighter frame guy and the, the guard was a heavier frame guy. The guard fell through the ice and he's shouting for help. You know, he's in this icy water in the middle of the night. 
and uh, there's no one else around. Dirk Willems, you know, hears him fall through the ice, hears him shout. He turns around, goes back, and helps him out, and he's recaptured, and then he is burned at the stake the following day or following week. Wow. Um, and so just, again, this kind of yeah. understanding of compassion and mercy, even for those who are your enemies, um, at the expense of yourself. And those are some of the stories that the Anabaptist movement is founded upon. Mm-hmm. And the Anabaptists then were killed by everybody. Um, yeah. Catholics, Protestants, everybody killed them. Yeah. Uh, and so they were, somehow they survived. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they have been massacred over and over, but they have survived in different pockets. And eventually with coming to America for religious freedom and you know, founding different communities here, they've, they've thrived and we have them today. And you would know them as people like the Amish, the Mennonites, the, uh, the Brethren Church or the Brethren in Christ Church. Or there's just a variety of different Anabaptist denominations that are out there now, but they would all value nonviolence. Um, and they would have all been, I shouldn't say all, it's always a dangerous word. Generally, the churches would have um, pushed their young men to be conscientious objectors during times of the draft or military service, though there are some that definitely serve the military still. Um, so my, my personal faith background has a deep roots in nonviolence, but I personally actually really struggled against that, especially growing up. And then when I was 18 is when we had September 11th, um, when terrorists attacked America, uh, in New York and, you know, claimed thousands of lives. And that was the moment for me when I felt like I should join uh, that was the moment for me that I felt so called to defend my country and um, that I wanted to join the military. And it took, I mean, a lot of soul searching to figure out if that was even what I wanted to do. And I eventually landed on no, I did not join up. And that was something I kind of struggled against because there was a number of people who I knew who were my age, who were my friends that did go, especially after that happened. And then after we entered the war with Iraq, which has lasted for quite a long time, whether it's official or not, uh, I've had more friends go and serve in the military. Some be injured or, or come back with uh, PTSD and, and other things that have happened as well. But again, for me, really landed on a nonviolence. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my personal background with where it's at and, and why it's been important to me. Beyond that, it's some, some stuff about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So yeah. anything? Yeah, I mean... Uh my grandfather served in World War Two as a medic because he felt as if he had he should serve, but um, he also didn't want to be responsible for shooting other people. So um, that was his point. But he had a brother that was a fighter pilot or whatever else, and I think all of his brothers served. So um, I was thinking about other sects of like Christianity. Like you also have like George Fox with the Quakers. They also had that that. Um, they basically told England that, listen, we're not going to be involved in all these wars about different religions and whatever else. Like, we don't believe that that's what Christ wanted. And so they they formed on pacifism. And um, they believe, essentially, that the light is in all people. And so, like, who are they to take life? And so, yeah, they burned at the stake. A lot of mm. the Quakers did. Um, and then you got uh, Francis of Assisi in the Catholic realm that, um, and he and Claire, uh, Saint Claire, um, and and that's probably where I get my whole animal piece too. Is that they just felt as if like if all things that God created and put time into 
making um, then they're divine and so who is he to take life so um, just makes me uh, been studying Francis a lot lately and it's pretty epic I don't have really a ton to, to say except for that guy was a beast yeah <laughs> he was awesome so what let me talk a little bit about um Jesus, Christianity, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and then I think there's some other things we can probably throw in there. Uh, maybe some other faith, faith uh, background stuff too. For sure. Um, I think, and I'll just, I just want to say this again. Doug has said it now twice, and I'm just going to say it again too. If if we um, if we hold to kind of this uh, understanding of Christianity, then we believe that God created all things, mm-hmm. and uh, whether it literally happened in a garden or that's a figurative metaphorical allegorical story it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter mm-hmm. uh, we believe that god created all things and so there is something of god's creation especially his, you know his breath he breathed into man to create man in other men uh and so you know and when i say other men i mean men and women <laughs> mankind yeah. um so that there is something something in you that you know is important that you know is special that is also in others and to remove that, to end that, is uh, is a pretty serious thing. Um, certainly, I would, whether you end up as a person who supports nonviolence or not, I would push hard for you to consider how deep a thing it is to take that light or that breath from another uh, being, another person. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus, though, talked quite a bit about violence. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's really important to me. So... In Matthew 5, in the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, you've heard the law of Moses say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust too. If you only love those who love you, what good is that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that. If you're kind only to your friends, how different are you from everyone else? Even pagans do that. But you're to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is to, is to be perfect. I think there's something to this idea that like it's not just the people we like. It's not just the people we're supposed to, that are easy to be around to love. We're supposed to love our enemies. you know. And I think a little further in Scripture, Jesus talking to uh, a lawyer, uh, and Jesus saying about love your neighbor. And the neighbor, I mean, the lawyer wants to kind of get around it a little bit. He wants to find the loophole. And he says, well, who is my neighbor, really? And Jesus proceeds to tell him your neighbor is the person that you really don't want it to be. Mm-hmm. Like he proceeds to tell him a story about a Samaritan who is kind of the enemy of the Jews. And that is your neighbor. And and I think that that should push us to understand that we are commanded by Jesus to do something that is hard. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable. And it's something that we often don't really want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when, when Jesus is arrested... Um, you know, soldiers come in, and we have Peter, uh, impetuous Peter, who jumps up to defend Jesus. And when he does, he whips out his sword, and he cuts off the ear of one of the guards. And Jesus immediately, you know, picks up the ear or puts his hand on the man's head, and he heals that wound. And he says, put away your sword. Those who use the sword to be killed by the sword, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. And so I guess there's this factor, kind of goes back to the shark question we were talking about earlier, is 
is trust. Um, do we trust in God really? Do we trust in God to actually protect us? In a situation where it seems like the only thing we can do is pick up our sword and cut off the ear of the person coming for us, are we really trusting in God in that moment? Because I would say that part of the reason that Peter's rebuked is because he wasn't trusting God, because he was taking matters into his own hand, and because he was doing something that Jesus adamantly taught against the whole time. Uh, and so because of you know my love for Jesus and because of Anabaptist background that elevates Jesus uh, in, in the words of Jesus over other scriptures, I have to... I have to ask the question, how can we follow Jesus and not buy into the nonviolence piece? Mm. Yeah. That's good. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I guess, like, to me, it when I think about Peter, he was so scared to probably be alone without this man that, like, he'd spent two, three years with and uh, has grown so close to him felt as if they, maybe this is my best friend and um, the idea of living life without that man was so scary and so he allowed the fear to dictate what his actions were going to be because to lose his best friend was too unbearable to think about and so there we are again with the, the fear and the security piece mm. of like um, in this case Peter absolutely you know took the data that was there and he said okay I need to do something to protect my friend because they're going to hurt my friend and they did certainly mm -hmm. but like the trust of God was no longer there like the faith was no longer there and um I think that that also has a fear of death. And if we believe in this, like, the afterlife of any sort, like, why are we so scared of death? And I think that that's what makes a large amount of decisions. And that's probably cooked in us as well when it comes to, like... Survival. Survival, right? Like, if we don't... If our species, everyone was just okay with dying, <laughs> then maybe we would just do a lot of ridiculous things and our species wouldn't have survived. Mm. But I think that this whole idea of like death is not something to be scared of. Uh, there is something there to it, to like a trust of God, like a real trust of God um, that, you know, this is just, it's a continuation of eternity. So let's just like, let's push into this idea of fear a little bit. Yeah. Um, I was just I was doing some research on some counseling methods about anxiety, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things that I came across was this exercise where the things you have anxiety about you write them down, mm -hmm. and then you kind of play out the scenarios in which those things would exist, yeah. and then you can essentially throw the piece of paper away as yeah. a way to kind of rid yourself of of these things. So let's just let's just play it out a little bit. Let's say that I have a gun and I'm pointing it at you, yeah. and I'm telling you, telling you to do something. It doesn't matter. Um, what's the fear? Not for you specifically, but for the person I'm putting the gun at. What's the fear? Uh, dying, probably. Dying. And, and why, let's say that you're a Christian, too. So like, you believe in Jesus, and you've had some sort of experience with Jesus, and you know that all the preachers you've ever heard in church have told you that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. So then what do you have to be fe the fearful of? Uh, what if they're wrong? What if they're wrong? Yeah. All right, let's, let's change the scenario a little bit. Um, what if I am would do my mom's scenario like what if i have your kid 
mm-hmm. in front of you. Yeah. And I'm I'm pointing the gun at your kid. Yeah. And you can protect them. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Right. Like what 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 was the fear there that I'm going to kill the kid, right? Right. And what's the worst thing that can happen there? Um What do you think the fear is for the person who's like about to lose their kid? Yeah, I would say that it's probably the idea of not being with their kid. Yeah. I I mean, as someone who's lost a kid, I can say that mm-hmm. um, it's probably unfair of me to ask you that question. I should have right. just answered that question a little bit. Like, having to redefine who I am without the kid now, mm-hmm. um, not having the kid anymore, like, so much of me is wrapped up in that. So yeah. much of my dreams and hopes have been wrapped up in the yeah. kid, and now they're going to be gone. Um, yeah, an emptiness in my life without the kid. Um, there's a whole lot there. Yeah. There's the unknown. I mean, it's definitely an unsecure future. Yeah. I mean, maybe it really does come down to fear and insecurity uh, always. Yeah. If I'm... If somebody breaks into my house and is attempting to rob me or hurt me, that's a lack of security. Mm-hmm. It's a fear. If I'm being called to go to war on behalf of my country, it's a lack of security and there's a fear. Mm-hmm. Um, does all this come down to that? I mean, why do why do why do countries go to war to secure something? Secu- something. Yeah, <laughs> it probably changes for right. a lot of stuff. But I would say, I mean, I think wars now are a little bit more messy than what they were. But like World War One, World War Two, it was. Well, we've got to define that we don't want the Germans to take over everywhere, right? Or uh, why did America get involved with World War II? Because we were attacked. Oh, we're not as secure as we thought we were. Now we have to go on the offensive because the best defense is a good offense. Um, with, uh, you know. You know, and they're probably wrapped up in all this, too, is like the fear of what others, others will think. Right, Like, what if I don't defend my family? Right. What will others think of me? What if I'm a president who doesn't retaliate against somebody who attacked me? What will others think? Actually, I think there might be a law that says the president has to. I think I remember hearing that after September 11th. Yeah, I'm not sure. That might not be true. Um, Yeah. What what will others think if I don't retaliate? Yeah. I didn't do my job. Yeah. Meanwhile, though, I mean, man, war gets so sticky because, like, you look at... I spent some time in Bosnia, and... Um, you know, with Bos- like Sarajevo is surrounded by mountains, and at the bottom of the valley is like this city, and so like the Serbians set up all the way around the city, and they were just had snipers shooting in on it for years, and like shooting mortars in and whatever else, and um, nobody was doing anything. The Serbs just sat there forever, and then eventually Bill Clinton was like, "Okay, enough is enough," and he sent in bombs and cleaned it out right so uh and that ultimately ended the war so it's like does one does that require like is sometimes does war require more war in order to find an end to it or if or you just allow genocide to go on and that's that's really tough um because one i've never been in that situation like i can't say that i'm like rwandan i have a friend that was a rwandan who like was through that whole genocide and literally, they didn't have enough weapons for him. So they hand him a stick and say, whenever we rush, just run and shout. Hopefully the numbers scare the other people away. Oh and goodness. like, but he felt like it was necessary for him to be a part of that militia because all of his 
you know, um, tribe or whatever was going to be wiped out. Mm. Um, so certainly, too, like the other thing that impacts the conversation, at least yeah. our conversation, yeah. is especially as you're telling stories about you know being in Bosnia or a friend that's Rwandan. Yeah, man, I have such a tremendous amount of privilege. To yeah. be able to sit here today yeah, absolutely. and ask these questions and say, I won't do this and I, I will do this and I yeah. stand for this. And I guess can't we can't say all this and not recognize the fact that we're unbelievably privileged yes. to have this. Yeah. And we don't live in some war-torn country yeah. where we are at our wit's end, where yeah. there's been generational slaughter and we're, we're it. Yeah. And that definitely changes the conversation yeah. a bit, too. I think that there's one thing to, like, it's one thing to be able to say, I don't want to kill somebody, right? And it doesn't matter what it takes, I'm not going to be a part of that because it's your own personal responsibility, and it might be some of those relationships, close relationships that you're protecting. But then when it comes to, like, I think it gets a little stickier when it becomes like genocide situations or when you're seeing, man, so there's this concentration camp in Bosnia called Srebrenica and like, I can't remember the exact number. I would say somewhere in like the high hundreds or a thousand men were, men and boys were being held there. And at the end of the war, the Serbs said just execute everybody. And so, um, outside of these gates that were monitoring the war to make sure it didn't get out of hand were, I want to say they were Dutch, but they might not be. They were with the UN for sure. And they sat there and just watched like a handful of guys execute over like hundreds of people, if not maybe a thousand people. And they had a tank and machine guns and all that, but they had, don't inter- intervene, don't be a part of that. And all these people lost their life because they just stood by and watched. And I don't know if that's the right thing either. You know what I mean? Like that pacifism is is not is not the right thing either. Oh yeah, for you sure. You know what I mean? Just to, stand to watch by and let evil do its thing to and take never its intervene. Course. Right. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right. which we've talked about before, yeah. uh, he's a a German pastor, theologian, young guy, back in, during World War II. Yeah. Uh, he was put in a concentration camp, and he was eventually executed by the Nazis. Um, but he actually was a part of an assassination plot to kill Hitler. Mm-hmm. And part of you know the argument, part of the, the theological, philosophical, ethical argument that's provided is if you can see a car rolling down a hill, and it's just hitting person after person after person, and you can step in and stop the car from hitting all the people. Yeah. And you know at the bottom of the hill, there's yeah. a whole crowd of people. It's only going to be worse when it gets down there. Mm. Do you step in and stop it or not? Yeah. And I, and I think like you know, for Dietrich Bonhoeffer at some point, he had to say, yeah, this is too much. Even as a pacifist, uh, even as somebody who was nonviolent, he needed to intervene at some point. And it's yeah. part of what you're pointing out is yeah. when you have genocide murky. happening, when you have yeah. a people group, a whole people group is unable to defend themselves. When you have people yeah. put in concentration camps or yeah, should you step in? Do you speak up? Do you yeah. stand up? Do you yeah. do something more than that? Yeah. I, and I don't know. Yeah. I think that that's the part where it's like, man, I sure wish that Jesus would have said something about that, right? Like, he was talking about the individual and I think that that was a large portion of his message was talking to people saying there is something better than this 
And ultimately, that's why I think I'm kind of against war, and it's so easy for me to say I'm against war. But, like, because I see it as the antithesis of what sin creates when it's run rampant, is that um, power and control start to take over, and the, the wealthy make decisions for the working class on who's going to shoot at each other. And mm. I just think that that's, that's so wrong, because it's issues between the wealthy and the powerful and it has nothing to do with these young boys that we're sending to war to to make really hard decisions for the sake of we're saying freedom but is it more than just freedom that we're fighting for at this time and are those decisions being made like are they really for freedom or are they for like power and more control i'm not sure yeah, I, I don't know there's any way to strip that stuff out of war. Yeah. There's always going to be those who profit. Right. And control. Yeah, and it's never it's never the person that loses the most. And then you have the whole idea of just war. Yeah. Which, you know, the church, the Christian church and the world has developed this theory called just war. And there's a bunch of criteria for uh, what it takes to get into war. And then there's some criteria on how to actually, like, behave in war. So there's two aspects to just war. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been developed for, I mean, over a thousand years. Uh, so it's nothing brand new. It's actually pretty old. Original Christian church would have been nonviolent. Uh, in fact, if you were like a Roman soldier converting to Christianity, the church would have called you out of your job as a Roman soldier. They would have said there's not a way for you to serve as, in both, you yeah. know, the church and being a soldier. Can't serve two masters. Right. Uh, but then, you know, eventually the church gets um, kind of a, a pass. Uh, it's accepted. Christianity is accepted by the government. And now we have um, a just war theory beginning to develop as far back as the 300s. Hmm. And then, you know, we have crusades and we have a whole lot of other stuff. But now today, currently today, when the United States goes to war, if it's going to go to war, the church gives its approval or not uh, as whether it's a just war. Hmm. And so even in times of like uh, World War II, um, when we declared that we were going to enter the war after Pearl Harbor, the, the Christian church, the Catholic church said that they actually encouraged all Catholic young men to join up hmm. because this was a just war. Mm-hmm. And then you have other conflicts in history where, like, Vietnam, for instance, mm-hmm. where the Catholic Church said it was a just war, just cause to get in. And then partway through, they pulled their support. And that's another part of the reason why we have all these protestings and, and things like that happening with the Vietnam conflict. Um, and so there's this, there's this responsibility that the church at large, the Catholic Church, has to decide whether something is just and decide whether they want to put their weight behind it, mm. and they can pull their weight from it. But is something just? Is there a, is there a such thing as a just war? Mm. Is there a such thing as a good reason to go to war? Yeah. I, I think yeah. one of the things you know we're talking about genocide and and things like that, and it seems like that would be the best reason. Yeah, I can't remember which book it is that C.S. Lewis wrote, but he talks about how like. Uh, there's no doubt in his mind. C- certainly, C.S. Lewis was not a pacifist, um, but he he talked about like there's no doubt in his mind that the German that's about to shoot at him when he was in uh, I want to say World War One that like 
when they're in heaven, they'll sit down and they'll laugh about their times at war together. Uh, because he's like, you know, there is like a responsibility to serve your nation. And that's his, that was his perspective. And I'm just like, for me, that's so strange to think about like sitting down with the guy that you shot at hmm. and like having a great, con great time in, in heaven. But like, and, and then I guess even like, is there such thing as something being just in general? <laughs> you know, like we go to that just war thing. It's like, is there such thing as a just war? Well, is there something that really like we're supposed to seek justice, but like what's the value of justice and, and how do we even determine something that for me, if, if war is based off of sin, how can we base anything in sin? I guess I would say no, there's not just war. Just working it out right now would be like, okay, if war is based off of a lot of people and their sin and brokenness making decisions to shoot at each other, how can anything that has based off of that sin and brokenness have justice attached to it? You know, I guess Scripture talks about how God works all things together for good. Sure. It doesn't say that all things are good. Yeah. He uses all things to work towards good. Right. But but does justice represent... I think justice is the representation of something being good or searching out good. God has the ability to fix brokenness and to fix problems. Uh, but to attach a label to something that is based in sin, to say, listen, like, there's something good here. I, I'm not sure you can if there's sin and sin and brokenness involved. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. And then, of course, the other thing, too, that has to be a fact in the conversation as you kind of roll this around in your head from a faith perspective, especially a Christian perspective, is the scriptures in the Old Testament that seem like God calls us to war. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, to me... Well, and this is my interpretation of the Old Testament is that it's written by broken men interpreting what God told them to do. But God, like to me, I don't think that God would have said, hey, knock out a whole generation of people. Or, I think that is a, like, a really fair assessment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a question that we should all be asking. Mm -hmm. Um because, especially as an Anabaptist, yeah. if we believe that Jesus is the actual exact representation of God, right. Hebrews 1, right. then when we look back at the stories about God of the Old Testament, yeah. the way Jesus acted and, and reacted and taught should give us light to what God actually did or did not say. Right. So when we have a passage where Moses or Joshua or somebody thinks that God said, kill all the women and the babies and the everyone right the question has to be okay if jesus says love your enemies and jesus is the exact representation of god did moses get it wrong right i, th I think it has to be a fair question yeah i'm not saying that we're all going to come down on the same side of that coin yeah and have the same answer yeah but if you're not asking the question you're missing a, a really good question to struggle with yeah i mean i think about like a lot of the old testament uh authors and would they be followed today if they wrote things down <laughs> they did some weird things you know what i mean like they were a little off the cuff and i feel like the 
typical at least American Christian is like we look at the Old Testament and be like well that was just then that's how it was and they said that's how it was going to be and obviously they were so enlightened and they they did these things like we're talking about guys that were like I mean some of the prophets you know cooking their meals on you know poop or whatever else you know and being like listen Israel this is what you're like you're like the poop and God's still making something out of it you know like they're just the or the one prophet which prophet was it that married a prostitute and he's like this is a representation of like yeah this is a representation of what life is like what your life is with with God you're a prostitute and yet God will God still works with you yeah he keeps taking you back over and over and over yeah it's just like yeah if if a pastor did that today and was like this is the word of the Lord here you go Will we all jump on board and be like, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a hard life and hard example to have to be. Right? Yeah. You know, so I just feel like a lot of times we're like, wow, this must have been it. <laughs> and and still maybe we're supposed to think about what's the character and nature of Jesus and all of this. So we should do a podcast at some point on the weirdness of the Old Testament. Oh, man, that would be fun. But for today yeah for you you can kind of look at some of the stuff in the old testament and be like well broken people wrote this yeah and their image and understanding of god is probably broken too yeah and so perhaps they got it wrong right which okay and i think there's some people out there that would hear that and go well i just wrote dug off because he doesn't even believe that the bible is the word of god which you should you should definitely <laughs> write me off <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but in reality, yeah. again, if you're not struggling through these things, right. then you're missing something important. If I mean, again, if you call yourself a Christian, if you're exploring Christianity in some way, shape, or form, if it's something that you're interested in and you're not struggling with some of these things, yeah. you're not holding these things in tension, yeah. you're missing out on something pretty amazing. I mean, there's a journey. What did you say the last time we got together? Was it like faith and and uh, questioning or faith and faith and doubt are excellent dance, dance partners, partners. Yeah. Just, it's all about who's leading yeah and i think that's i think i worked that into a sermon since we last talked to because cool. it's it's just so good yeah um i think the other thing too here's another i think you'll like this one a uh, guy named uh parker palmer or brendan manning i can't remember which one now i like them both uh they're both authors christian guys um parker palmer seems to be really a bit more of a mystic though okay as I'm, i read them now uh, anyway one of them said as people, as humans, we we have dust, gold dust in one pocket and dust in the other. Gold in one pocket, dust in the other. And we stand somewhere in between. And if we spend too much time in one pocket, we either think of ourselves too much of too much or too little. Yeah. And so there's a balance, there's a tension to live in. Well, you have you live between these two pockets with gold and dust. Yeah. And I think in this conversation, <laughs> we live in this perpetual tension of okay, as an individual. I have the ability to say I am not going to kill somebody or I'm going to do my best not to. I don't know what it's going to be like if I ever get put in a situation where that even becomes an option. Yeah. And I pray that I'm never in that situation. But as I sit here now today, I'm not going to kill somebody to the best of my ability. Mm. So I live in between that pocket and then there's this non-individualistic 
call that C.S. Lewis is getting to of like yeah. you serve your nation and maybe it's not about your nation yeah. but maybe there's something when it's not just you that's being affected and it's not just an individual choice because somebody's here mugging you yeah. and there's a entire people group that is being like having atrocities committed against them maybe we end up in a place like Dietrich Bonhoeffer where we've asked this question can I stop the car rolling down the hill and if I can I should right. because if I don't how is God viewing that like how yeah. does God sit back and look at me going uh, being the Dutch soldiers that watch the Serbians kill a whole bunch of people. Yeah. That's not honoring. No. No, it's not. So how do I live between these two pockets? Yeah, I think it's the acknowledgement of the dust and either pocket having value. So we believe that the gold dust itself has value because that's the story that we've been told. And so we've been told that... Uh, like what Amer like what culture tells us around us is that there is always value to having your guns because that ultimately protects you and your safety is is valued and these sorts of things but uh, there's also the scriptures that tell us that we need to value our enemy and we need to take care of each other and um, that we need to see the divinity in somebody and so we need to break down the idea of um, what the story is that we were told and we can look at on the other end of that uh, what's really going on and I don't think that a lot of people do that I think a lot of people um, they just listen to the story that they're told and they accept it and they say that's great and that works for a lot of people but that does not work for me I don't like being told what to do um, and I certainly told what the value of something is supposed to be. That there has to be, like, if, they, if it was created by God, there has to be value in general. Hmm. And so it, it just comes down to, um, does God create war? I mean, I guess, is, is, is that it? Like, did, did, does God create war? Or was that, was that created by some other entity within... All right, so check this out. That's a great question. Yeah. I can't answer it. I have no idea, right? right. I don't think I don't think God created war. That's the short answer. But yeah. it made me think something else. Okay, yeah. can I tell you? I was reading some uh, Jewish midrashes the other day. Cool. All right, and there was this uh, this one um, rabbi who did one on Cain and Abel, and th which interests me because, of course, Cain and Abel is the first mm -hmm. murder, murder in in the Bible, right? Right. Again, whether that's allegorical or not, it doesn't matter. It's yeah. the first one we have written down. Right. Uh, and the Midrash looked at what the brothers must be saying to one another. Mm -hmm. And it essentially was like, you know, uh, Cain was the farmer mm -hmm. and Abel was the shepherd. Mm -hmm. And so Cain looks to Abel and says, the ground you stand on is mine. Mm -hmm. And Abel looks to Cain and says, the clothes you wear are mine. Mm -hmm. The shepherd can make the clothing and the farmer tills the ground mm -hmm. and this leads to the brotherly conflict and it just it made me have a different picture on what was happening with Cain and Abel yeah uh, and some of the tension that might have arose from one feeling like God favored a mm -hmm. sacrifice and the other but this ownership that comes with the thing we ply ourselves to yeah. what you wear is mine and the ground you stand on is mine mm, that makes me think about Thomas Merton and he talks about how when a person is selfish they ultimately feel as if they are trying to manipulate uh, free will. So you want someone else to do what you wanted them to do in order to fulfill your own selfishness. 
And so what you're essentially doing is you're trying to stop the will of somebody else in order to manipulate it to you to you. Well, that's to be war. Come of it, right? Which How's is that war. Not war, right? It's exactly war. And so it's like it, what we have to realize then is the acceptance of that God has a plan, and that if we allow our selfishness to bleed like bleed away, and we want His will, which is to love each other and to take care of each other, we're not gonna have war. War is based off of selfishness. It's based off of that sin. It's based off of pride. I just that's I think that's why I stand so firmly against it. Is like these are things that we've been told that we're supposed to reject, and yet, uh, man, is all violence based off of selfishness? Not just war, but all violence. Like I the mean, person who's coming into your house at night to rob your house, or the person who wants to to rape or the person who is is a bully making fun of somebody at school like is all violence based on how about when our kids fight with each other over a toy like is all violence based on selfishness I'm gonna go with yes until I hear otherwise I guess the only violence I can think of is like well not no I actually can't I was gonna say I was going to say, well, when you stand up for someone else that you love, right? But that itself is selfishness because you're standing up for somebody else. And um, the only space that is free for you to manipulate is the space that you are in, right? So, like, if ultimately, if you're taking on someone else's space, you've now overstepped your boundaries or you've overstepped what you, what's your responsibility um, and so you're trying to br- manipulate that free will still. Hmm. So let's so rewind a little bit back to what you were talking about with like story, the story mm-hmm. you've been told, the story you've been given, whether it's by culture or by mm-hmm. our parents or whatever. Yeah. If all violence is based on selfishness, certainly in the moment there is a selfish reaction. Yeah. But... Sometimes we are inheriting a story of selfishness that we've accepted as true. And so maybe it's not even our selfishness. We're acting on the selfishness of those who've taught us the story. Hmm. Yep. It's good. Boy, I'll tell you, it seems like it's oversimplified. Oh, well, it probably is. But the, I think that... The problem is when you take a subject that's like this big and you say, okay, well, let's kind of define where we're at within something. Like, it's kind of like diving into a three-foot pool. You're going to end up cracking your neck in the first, you know, like you're going you're gonna to get hurt uh, because there's this sense that it goes really, really deep and we can go really deep. But as you kind of surface out of it, it's like, holy cow, no, it's actually not as deep as you, you think because it really is just humans being broken and sinful. So let's you just... You know what I mean? Like, and, and where do we stand on that? Like, that's where you can kind of get a lot of different perspectives is like, okay, the Hitler thing. Okay, is it okay to kill Hitler? Okay, well, I think that there's some definite valid points, but at the same time, he was created in God's image, and to kill one man is like killing God. Mm-hmm. So, like, where do we hold that value? Is our value like to prevent him from killing a lot of people? That is like killing God's image, which is like killing God. 
Okay, so <laughs> you, I'm holding the gun on you. Right. I'm trying to mug you. Yeah. The selfish response, the one that's controlling, the one that tries to control your destiny and the space in which you're in, the one that is locked in fear and in security, yeah. is to kill me first. Stop me. At all costs, stop me from holding this gun on you or potentially killing you. I mean, maybe. Oh, man, is it selfish for me to be like, hey, you know what? I know where I'm going to go. Go ahead and shoot me. Well, so is it? What, <laughs> so is what the I answer mean? for you to just give me your wallet? Maybe, I guess. I don't. I don't know. Like it, that's that's where these scenarios get really hard too, is because it's like, what do you even do until you've actually been in that scenario? Like I like to think of like, oh, I have all these answers of how I'm gonna actually respond, but until there's like a deadly weapon pointed at you, pointed at you, like you don't know what you're gonna do. Yeah. So say side note for a second, right? Yeah. Did you know that like back in the seventies, they were like groups of people that the church would pay to pretend terrorize the church, come in with guns and stuff and oh, pretend man. that like they would drag people out and they'd have gunshots and all sorts of stuff and people would think that that's you know, did you know that that happened? No, but you know what it doesn't surprise me because that was such a that was that whole like uh, Jesus people kind of movement and like you had a large amount of people that came off of drugs and became Christians and you're well, like for them to think that that was okay so but, it says to me like maybe I was doing acid at one point in my life <laughs> I think that continued into the 90s by the way well that's I not think that... some of the last stories I heard was when they would do this to youth groups yeah we did get my youth group you had this happen to your youth group yeah well it was it with like was... the fake gunshots and you thought people were dead no we didn't have like a stranger but like it was definitely they had us line up on a line and then our youth pastor came in with like a fake gun which was clearly a fake gun and said what would you do if I came in and, and you had to say what it would be like we definitely did that oh my gosh I'm so thankful that did not happen to me Yeah, we, I'm so thankful I don't know what I would do with that uh, That's what we did the same thing with like separating the church into heaven and hell and like if you were you know believed in God and you could go spend time in the heaven area and if you you know didn't love God you could go to hell uh, yeah, the 90s were awesome, and this is why I'm probably the way I am. I mean, okay. this is why I told you the other day, I was like, I'm not so sure I'm like really, really excited about my kids learning from other people about God. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not really excited about the way that I learned about God. Mm. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and I totally sidetracked this, so yeah. sorry. I just, no. But you're talking about that, yeah. and I'm just like, did you know that the church used to do this? Yeah. Okay, so so yeah, the yeah. mugging thing, right? Yeah. So the, I, I think I, the point I'm trying to make is, like, in an individual, like, for me to you, someone's trying to mug me, they're pointing a gun at me, the selfish thing for me to do is to strike back or to stop them at all costs. Probably the, the smarter thing to do is just give them the wallet. Mm. Like, why why is this an issue? Like, just, okay, give them the wallet and cancel my credit cards. And yes, did I lose some cash? I probably did. But luckily enough... I think I could probably go get some more yeah, cash. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is that maybe, perhaps, to that person, their identity is within that wallet. And so they think to themselves, well, that also loses my security. Sure. So it, that security and fear piece being pretty significant. Um, the problem is, I mean, I would want to go Enneagram here. And, like, if more than 50% of people are sixes, they're in the... Um, the security, like security, is ultimately the most important thing to a six, mm -hmm. um, and they, 
um, they're based out of the fear triad. So fear is what they struggle with and they are constantly looking for security. So when you have more than 50% of this, the world essentially being a six, uh, this is why you have news organizations that the, the majority of what they do is based on fear and security because that gets ratings. Hmm. That's why the security businesses of cameras and these kind of things and locks and they do really well and they'll never not do well because people are like an overwhelming majority of people care about fear and security. Unfortunately for them, it's I'm not a six and so literally like it's just I'm not too worried about that fear aspect or that security piece and I maybe I should be sometimes but I'm not but most people are like I think that that's the thing is like most people are associating themselves to fear and security and like how they manipulate and deal with those situations in order to even have a good time so as an individual yeah responding to violence or choosing nonviolence, right there's a certain criteria with which we make the decision a criteria which will be judged yeah but when there's something more on the line than just you yeah is it is it possible that the belief in nonviolence is actually the selfish thing yeah like if i have the opportunity like you said to shoot hitler is the selfish thing not shooting hitler because of my principled nonviolence i don't i don't know if it's selfish or not selfish it's due to, like, I guess the question is, like, what we get into, like, a murky area is, like, is there, like, judgment on a person if they don't take advantage of one of those situations? And I can't say that that's our responsibility to even do the judging. You know, like, it's like one of those, <laughs> I mean, do you shoot a man and possibly have a large amount of shame and guilt and things that go on and although you may have saved a lot of people you carry a large amount of grief with you or do you shoot do you miss this the opportunity to and you still have the ability to have shame and guilt because you didn't shoot him i think it's a it's a rock you're you know a rock stuck between two hard places i don't know if there's a good answer i just hope that people don't have to make those decisions you know I think, what I mean? Like, well, I totally know what you mean. I yeah. think that's a fair point. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. And I guess, I guess, what's coming down to for me too is, I can be principled all I want when it's just me. Yeah. But when there's other things on the line, whether it's my family, mm -hmm. or it's an entire culture, yeah, there's genocide being committed against them. Yeah. My principles might be the thing that's the most selfish. Yeah. But I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't know how to reconcile that. Yeah. Now that I'm there in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that more often than not, we're manipulated by our culture. I think that that's really what it comes down to. And so, um, be really careful what I say here. Uh, for instance, the um, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, is it a matter of like, were police officers killing black men and women uh, without having a lot of evidence previous to the Black Lives Matter, you better believe it. Why did we only start hearing about it when it became? Because people started becoming 
understanding it and the stories that were being told so that people would get involved with it right like it just seemed to me it seems to me like it's a, it's a good example of how like the story that we're told then brings things into focus mm. but you know what i mean totally so like uh the, there's a historic picture uh during the civil rights movement of some young black um like it's a, i think it's a man in the picture mm-hmm. who's like marching mm-hmm. and there's police with german shepherd dogs yeah. and the dog is like almost biting the man it's mm-hmm. just it was on cover of time magazine oh, yeah. back in yeah. the day that picture is actually staged hmm. uh they actually like there's a whole history behind it like martin luther king was the voice of the movement but there were these other strata 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 the word i'm looking for these other guys in the movement who provided strategy for the movement right and so like rosa parks not the first person not to give her seat up mm-hmm. that was again it doesn't take away from the fact that the picture was taken and that there were people being hurt terribly yeah. it doesn't take away from the fact that there was somebody like rosa parks who was willing to you know, get in a lot of trouble for not giving your seat up, but she wasn't the first one. Rosa Parks then actually, they kind of made that happen because it had happened before. And so the way the story is told, the way it's shown, it changes everything dramatically. The story mm-hmm. that's being told changes the narrative, yeah. shapes us yeah. completely. And it doesn't, it doesn't, that doesn't then belittle the pain and suffering of people because they want to get the story out. No. What they want to do is to, to provide the truth for what's being told. I think that what can happen, though, then when it comes to... In these situations, we're talking about liberation, right? Like, And liberation is something to be fought for, and no matter what you do, you, you're fighting. I think that's just... Just liberation is something that's real. Mm. You know what I mean? Just war, though, when it's based off of like not, not liberation or freedom, we're talking about uh, exploitation of people. Uh, I'm not sure that you can spin a story that gets the story out so that people benefit. Mm. You know, I think that the only thing I could say is that like places should be telling stories of where, um, how people can get involved to stop war. <laughs> we don't hear about that. We just hear about like, oh wow, that's wild. That's a crazy war. Thank God I'm not in Syria. You yeah. know, like. Maybe we should be talking more about some of these nonviolent movements as a step in the process rather than just jumping right to, and maybe, maybe it's just, it's my naivety. Maybe we don't just jump right to war, but sometimes it certainly seems like we jump right to violence rather than taking some of the other steps. Yeah. And, you know, movements like, like Gandhi or the civil rights movement, like Mm -hmm. there are these massive things that have happened that we have access to because it's so recent in our history that we Mm -hmm. have we have footage and we have writing we have yeah. record of these things that happen maybe we should be learning more about that stuff so that we can take those as steps yeah. before we ever take this step toward violence whether it is just or not right there are steps that we're not taking that we should be taking yeah and maybe that's true on a national level mm-hmm. and an individual level yeah i think that when you operate out of truth and of something good generally speaking truth and good things come out of it but when you operate out of fear and yeah, fear and anger, what comes out of it is just more fear and anger. Even World War One and World War Two were very much uh, more clear-cut wars, right? Like 
opposed to some of the wars that we've been a part of in the last 50 years. Uh, but yet, World War I happened, the Germans fought, and why did they go back into war? Because the story was told to them that the rest of Europe and America have basically taken everything away from them and because of the first war, and they're going to stand up and say, no, that's not right. Mm. And so out of war came more war. <laughs> Uh, it just it just seems to me like there's got to be a better way, and yet how do you get a, a world full of people that are broken and hurt? So hurting, hurting people hurt people. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we could I think um, Plantinga said that sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Yeah. What if there is a way like for each of us, not just to take steps before you get to violence not to just research these non-violent movements in order to take different steps before we get to a violent place mm -hmm. but what if there's a way for us to be healthier as people as individuals to yeah. be more shalom centered mm -hmm. uh, so that we are not perpetuating hurt to yeah. one another so yeah. hurting people aren't hurting people what if we can stop the hurting people what if that's within our power what yeah. if it's within our power to eliminate some of our hurt in in us, yeah, and then in the way that we interact with one another, yeah. to eliminate some of the hurt we cause others. Yeah, generally speaking, though, I think that people don't typically focus on fixing themselves. So that's that's the thing is like we we think that we're the ones that doesn't have the problem, and ultimately other people have the problem. And if we would actually take a mirror and look at ourselves, I mean, Jesus talked about this, right? Like I why? Say, I think this yeah. I've heard this before. Yeah, it's like why? You, why deal with you know the speck in your your brother's eye if you've got a plank in your own? I think he was trying to really literally tell us to take a look in the mirror and be like, hey, I got issues. I got problems with my pride. I've got problems with my, you know, selfishness. Hmm. I need to ratify these things. And if I can get these things right, then maybe I can help my brother. And it might even be easier if he only has a speck and I had a plank, you know? But, like, uh, so often you, you just – I know everybody can relate to the idea of being at work and hearing people complain about how everyone else does it wrong or how this person did it that way and they don't understand how that person could possibly do it that way. Uh, well, it's – all of that is just saying, listen – I don't acknowledge the fact that I have an issue. So, not that we're trying to draw massive conclusions here, but to draw maybe one small conclusion today is that we need to do a better job working on us. Yeah. Because if we work on us, mm -hmm. we stand a better chance of actually changing the world. Mm -hmm. One person, one interaction, one moment of shalom at a time. Yeah if we work on the shalom that's in us. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that message of like we need to go out and save the world, but we often miss out on the, the opportunity to like save save ourselves in some ways. Now I don't mean that it's like a oh, you can save yourself kind of deal. Like but what what you can do is you can interact with Jesus and how Jesus is working on you. And if you're not doing that, mm. how are you supposed to even talk to somebody else about Jesus? I think you're preaching. Oh, no. Yeah, it's, you're preaching. I don't think so. <laughs> I would never say that. All I'm saying is that um, take a hard look in the mirror and say, you know, look in the mirror and say, holy cow, that person in the mirror is divine. God created me in his image, 
And if you start to believe that in yourself, it's really easy to start believing in other people too. Mm. But as long as you have, as we have people that you don't really like yourself, you've got all the shame and guilt that you're carrying around. You're scared of all kinds of ridiculous things, and you got an anger problem that's just blowing up people all the time. Where are we supposed to go from here? But if we can replace those things with that faith and love and joy and peace, boy, maybe we might make a dent. Thank you.